If you haven't met me, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the elders at Real Life Church. Um, I come here pretty much every Sunday. And I come here with my beautiful wife, who's sitting at the front, and um, the youngest of my three children, because the elder two are otherwise engaged in university or work or other things. But um, it's a pleasure to be here, a pleasure to bring God's word this morning. And I um, always, when, when I come to God's word, I kind of ask at the beginning for myself that God would speak through my preach. That's not to say that I am a prophet like Micah, but hopefully I've spent enough time studying his word and understanding what there is in here and asking the Holy Spirit to reveal what he wants to, to emphasize for us today. So this isn't new revelation. This isn't thus saith the Lord um, version two. This is this is me looking at what God has already revealed and asking him to emphasize what, what he has for us this morning. So with that in mind, could I ask that we get ourselves in a place where we're ready to listen to God's word in that way, where we submit our hearts and our minds, that we submit our opinions, our views, and we submit our cultural influences to his influence and his word and his will before we get going. Yeah? Cool. Okay. You don't need to stand, but please be receptive. This isn't just a formality. So, Lord, we just want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you, Lord, that your word is powerful, that through your word you have brought about salvation for your people, that you have revealed your will for the way that you work with mankind and that you have, have exposed for us the, the story of redemptive history, how you are working through, through trials, tribulations, through joy, through suffering, through everything so that we come to a place where man is fully reconciled to God and where peace reigns and where there is no war and no suffering and we live in eternity in satisfaction with you. Lord, I pray right now that by your Holy Spirit, you help us to submit to your word, that you help us to learn as we listen to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, right, so you've heard me say a few times that I grew up in Port Elizabeth and I really love surfing, and um, I'm going to carry on with that theme a little bit. And this is an anecdote and it is related to the sermon, but Rob, if you want to Pop that slide 1A up for me. That over there is a surf spot back in Port Elizabeth called The Fence. Now, you're probably looking at it like, okay, well, it's a wave. But when I look at it, I get like little, little sparkles of joy coming up inside of me because that's not just a wave. That is an amazing wave. That is the kind of wave that surfers look for um, and spend a lot of time trying to get into and, and get proficient enough to surf well um, so that they can get under that lip and into that barrel and, and make it out and then whoop for joy um, for hours and hours and tell stories for weeks afterwards about how amazing that particular surfing session was. Now, the fence was in a part of Port Elizabeth which was actually very sheltered from from the, the prevailing swell in, in the area. So it wasn't very often like that. The best thing that could happen to get the surf at the fence working 
was for there to be two or three days of a southeasterly wind blowing, which would bend the swell into the bay, and then suddenly you'd get this little, little weather pattern called a coastal low that would run along the coast in front of a cold front, and the wind would turn to southwest and start blowing offshore at the fence and clean up the surf, and for about six hours, the fence would be on. Now, you had to combine that with the high tide. Now, I was a young man at school, and because of this particular phenomenon, I'd spend my evenings watching certain television programs and then waiting for the news to end so I could watch the weather because I was looking out for the coastal low. Because the coastal low meant that I might get a good surf at the fence the day after school. So I'd go to school knowing that the coastal low was coming and I'd be in lessons having already packed my surfboard in my parents' car and my wetsuit, waiting in anticipation, knowing that this afternoon is going to be in the car, down to the beach, run to the fence, catch a wave or two or three like that, and then stories about it. Um, and I just all I can say to you is, is that, that, out, that those few hours at school, I could get through them because of the hope that I had for what was to come. And that's the theme for today's sermon. It's time for hope. And hope can get you through some really challenging times. Like for me, it was maybe doing Afrikaans with Mr. Van der Nest, or perhaps it was um, coping with a science lesson with Mr. Schrappler. Um, and I could get through because there was going to be amazing surf at the end of the day. I'm going to say, and I'm going to caveat this, that that kind of hope is great, but it's not very productive. The last few hours of the school day were useless in terms of actual work done, but I got through, got to the beach, and I've got some amazing stories to tell about the fence. This photograph was taken by a friend of mine paddling out, and as you can see, there's no one on that wave because we got there before anyone else did. So it was a really, really good session. So that's where we're at today. We're going to be talking about hope. Hopefully a hope that's more productive than this one. A hope that doesn't make you so heavenly minded that you know earthly good. A hope that drives your actions and your motivation and your thinking in the here and now because you know what's to come. Briefly, where have we been? We're looking at Micah. We're now in chapter four. We've been through the first three chapters over the last four weeks with a break in between. Um, and just a quick recap, just to remind you, where does Micah sit in the history of Israel as a prophet? His ministry started in 722 BC. Um, he, he wrote this prophecy on the, the, I suppose, the eve, the historical eve of the exile of Israel or the, or the plundering of, of Israel, and Judah was next. Um, it was written to God's people at a time of great prosperity, great spiritual heritage, a time where they, they felt really good about, about what they had done as a society and how they had um, grown as, as a kingdom under God. Um, 
And unfortunately, what had happened is instead of that leading to a greater sense of holiness, a better treatment of the, the poor, those that were, were struggling, it turned into a situation where it was every man for himself. They were looking for loopholes, ways of oppressing those that could be manipulated easily, taking land from families that had uh, been there for hundreds of years, worshipping of idols, uh, basic, basic selfishness. And I guess that sounds familiar to, to us. When we look at the world around us, we probably think, well, that sounds or feels very similar to the world that we're in. And it's into this context that the prophet speaks. And the temptation for him... Um, sorry, that was very wooden, but it was for a reason. There's a camera there, and I'm in the wrong place. <laughs> um, so he speaks into the situation, and the temptation, and I think the temptation for us is the same as Micah's, it was certainly for many other prophets of the day, is to speak the thing that would get you influence, would, would tickle the ears of those in power so that you can at least get in and work the system from the inside. But Micah doesn't do that. Micah hears God, and he declares what God has said. And that prophecy is not comfortable. It's not palatable, and it's not something that, that the leaders of Israel and Judah are willing to listen to in the same way that they would something that perhaps tickled their ears. Perhaps said to them, listen, you guys are prosperous and you're blessed and God loves you very much and your reign's going to be for a thousand years more and no nation could touch you because God is in his temple and he's in the presence of Israel and, and you're, you're, you're immortal. Micah comes in and says, you are being disobedient. You are oppressing God's people. You are abusing your power. You have put God in a box and he is going to judge you. And that judgment is going to be severe. But at the same time, he brings in a message of hope in that prophecy, the words of God for, for God's people. Before we dive into the text for today, I just... I just want to say that it doesn't escape me that we are studying a prophecy of judgment against Israel and Judah at a time when there is once again conflict between Palestine and Israel. And there are nations mustering around them. There are nations mustering against them. There are nations uh, mustering for them. And, and in a, a sense, it's it's tempting to look at these words and apply them only to, to Israel and those nations, to think about how these words are current and, and you know, important for, for, for how we interpret what's going on there. And in a, sense, in a sense, it's right that we spend some time prayerfully considering that this prophecy first and foremost was for the leaders of Israel and Judah. It was directed at them, not at you and not at me. And the direct message, the specific violation that, that is being raised, the description of the judgment is specific to Israel and Judah at that time. That's fairly obvious. But the reason this prophecy and all the other prophecies of the Old Testament are still in our Bibles is because God still has something to say to us through it. 
He has something to say to you and me. It's not just us standing as objective spectators on the world stage looking at something that's happening distant from us. He is speaking to us through these words as well. And so this morning, we look at looking at Micah chapter 4. Um, you're welcome to get your Bibles out. I don't have the words up on the slides for this one, but if you want to read through with me, we're going to chop it up into three chunks, and we're going to look at, um, look at the main theme through those three chunks as we speak. We're in chapter 4. It's 13 verses long. And this is where Micah describes for Israel this, this future hope. It's, it's filled with imagery of, of peace, of security, um, and most importantly, of a righteous and just leader, which is in stark contrast to the, the unjust and selfish leaders in Israel and Judah at the time. There's a message in here for us because we are the ones who are standing between the cross and Christ's return. And when you read these words, it just resonates so loudly in the ears of Christians that this is a prophecy about Messiah. And we're living in the time between the time that Messiah comes and announces the kingdom of God and waiting in anticipation for his return. And we kind of go, okay, so what is there for us to do in this time? So there's a word for us, um, for us that are living in the moment where we're waiting for the fulfillment of this prophecy. And the big idea for us um, today is, like Micah, we have a message of hope in the midst of war. And that means war in our hearts and between nations. We have a message of hope in the midst of war that peace will reign and suffering will come to an end under Christ's rule. As opposed to John Lennon's view that it would be if there was no heaven and if there was no religion, then there would be peace. This is a declaration that peace will only come under Christ's rule. So let's start then, verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples or nations shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the peoples, between many peoples, and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit, every man, under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. 
for all the people's walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. What a beautiful, beautiful vision of a future of peace where war is no longer needed, where disputes are resolved and nations are are reconciled. A picture of contentment and plenty, a sense of rest, men, all men, every man sitting under his fig or his vine tree. We sit here in England, we think I'm going to need more shelter than that, mate. Well, I can't grow a fig here. But the point is simple, isn't it? Every man provided for, every man content, every man sitting under his tree that bears fruit and feeds him and offers him shelter with no need. But remember the context of this word. Mark is declaring judgment on Israel and Judah. He's just told them that it's going to be a bit of a mess. He's just prophesied the utter devastation of Jerusalem and the the temple and he said that the mountain of the Lord will be wooded over and that the temple will be ruins and Jerusalem will be destroyed. And the very next words are that the the mountain will be raised high, that the Lord will reign and that it'll be most prominent amongst the nations. So he's reminding Israel that God's hand is not against them to destroy them entirely, but to bring about his divine purposes and restore them from what had become a false religion to a true faith. And so he gives them a glimpse of this future, a future which is prophesied in so many ways at so many times through the Old Testament, where Israel, God's people, will become a blessing to many nations. And he says, and he reflects that promise that was given to Abraham many years ago, and and so it's fitting, isn't it, that he uses this imagery. I mean, just imagine at the time the idea of, of beating your swords into plowshares or your spears into pruning hooks, the idea that, that nations would no longer need to learn the art of war. Israel lived at a time where nations were warring all around them all the time, and they'd gone through so much conflict themselves. But there's this, this imagery of a perfect peace where you don't even need to know about war anymore. There's no need for armies. There's no need for generals. There's no need for grand strategists that can think into the future 15 years and and make decisions on how best to spend their money, on what kind of weaponry to defend themselves against what kind of enemy. They don't even need to do any of that. So all their tools of war can be repurposed for an agricultural pursuit, the kind of activity that at the time they'd have known, you you need times of peace to pursue wealth, to grow vineyards and grow trees that bear fruit take years. And you can't be doing that if you're fighting at the same time. So there's this 
agricultural image of just absolute peace, the kind of peace that doesn't even have a glimmer of darkness in it, that something's going to go wrong at some point, or this peace is going to come to an end at some point, so just enjoy it while it lasts. None of that. This is perfect peace. But we need to remain mindful of that framing, don't we? That this is a judgment. These verses, this peace comes not from man and his efforts, not from them being able to figure out how to negotiate well, but, but it's a peace that comes from God. Specifically, the Lord in these verses, all capitals, L-O-R-D, refers to the Messiah. And He's ruling from Mount Zion. And um, I'm, I'm, I was talking about this mountain, that this idea of the Mount Zion being raised higher than, than any other mountains, and, and commentators differ on how that should be interpreted versus, you know, it, it, is that in terms, of, in terms of influence, or is that actual physically the Mount Zion is going to end up being taller than Everest at some point? And, you know, we, we can debate that sort of thing for a long time, but the point is this. The point is this, that Mount Zion will be the place when the king is on his throne that will be of most prominence in all the world, the place that all nations will look to, the place that will influence the thinking of all nations, the place that will, will change the hearts and minds of men. And we live in the latter days when it says that the mountain of the Lord will be raised to this prominence. We live in that time because the latter days really refers to this church age between the time when Jesus Christ went to be with His Father and sent the Holy Spirit to the church so that we could continue His work here on earth and announce that He is coming back. And when He comes back, there will be no more war. So we are the bearers of this message that has been handed down from, from prophet to prophet and then went quiet for 500 years and then came back again with John the Baptist as he walked through the, de the, the desert declaring that we should repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he baptizes Jesus, and Jesus continues that work, but in an ultimate sense where he says, you should repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, and I am the one who's bringing it in, as he reads out Isaiah's scroll. And then he hands that mantle over, not to an individual, but to his body on earth, the church. So we are the bearers of this message of hope that comes through the word all the way through. Let's move straight on then to verse 6. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame. I will gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion, and from this time forth and forevermore, and you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, 
don't want to dwell too long on the symbolism in, in verse 8, but just to kind of clarify, the, the idea of the former dominion coming um, refers to Judaism. It refers to the, the, the promised people of God under Abraham. And the child or, or the daughter of Jerusalem or the daughter of Zion refers to that restored, the true Israel. And you could say those are them that are circumcised in heart, not in flesh. So it refers to us in the church. It refers to those from Israel that turn to the Messiah. It refers to, to, to His people, those that He's chosen from out of the world that He would rule and reign over. So that you know, don't get too tied up in all of that. You can go and have a look at all the symbolism and see how it ties into other prophets and how they've used those words. But the big point here is that he continues to declare that it will be at this time when Christ returns that God will draw a faithful remnant back to him. And the language used indicates that this remnant will be the ones that were considered outcasts the ones that were lame, the ones that were maimed, those, that, that those who were wealthy considered not blessed by God, those who were sitting in, in, in positions of prominence, either in terms of leadership as a king or as a high priest, considered outside the camp, not part of God's people. And interestingly, Micah doesn't go to great pains to clarify that he's referring to those that are exiled from Judah and Israel. It seems far more inclusive than that. It does include them. It includes the remnant that will be Jews that were exiled by God, but it goes much further than that. He's talking about those that come from every people every nation, every tongue will be drawn to him and he will make them a remnant. He will make them a nation. Often people think, how is it possible that you bring people from so many different contexts and you make them into one people that are unified? It's only possible through God. God is the only one who can do that. And so, so that, again, for us as the church is a, a message of what we're here to do. We are messengers of God's reconciliation with man, and we are meant to exemplify that, number one, by pointing to a, a future when it will be perfect, and number two, by doing everything we can to reflect that in the way that we work with the people around us day to day. It won't be perfect, it'll be fraught with problems, but it is a reflection of what Christ will do and it is a reflection of how we should, we should be engaging with the people around us, the, the mission of the church in the world. Let's go on to verse 9. And what Micah does here is he, he kind of steps back. You know when you're in movies and you get the flashbacks and you're like, what the heck is going on? I don't know if we're in the future or the past or... Oh, oh, okay, that, that's the character and he's younger. Okay, we're in a flashback. There's a little bit of a flashback here in that he's talking about the future and now he comes back to the immediate future. So not right now, but what is he's talking to Israel and Judah as they're going through um, the invasion and the exile. And he says to them, now why do you cry aloud? 
is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seizes you like a woman in labor. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and you shall dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon and there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze, and you shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Wow. That's harsh, isn't it? But again, context a future of hope and peace, but not man's hope, God's hope. Rebellion has no place in God's kingdom. And there is no man on earth that is not doing God's will. Even in their rebellion, they do God's will. And that's how Micah summarizes his prophecy. He he contextualizes this future hope by acknowledging He acknowledges the struggle and the pain that is to come. But he doesn't leave it there. He doesn't go, yeah, well, you know, suffering's meaningless. You're going to just have to uh, deal with it. Uh, he, He likens it to childbirth. And in likening it to childbirth, he gives it meaning. He gives it purpose. He says, through this suffering, God is going to achieve his purposes in you, and through you. And even those that arrogantly rise up against God's people and and gloat lustfully and in the most disgusting fashion over a a person that is, is suffering, they are inevitably part of a great plan which they don't understand. They arrogantly think that they have the power of the sword, that they have the the influence and the control in the situation, but what they don't understand is that even their actions, their rebellion against God is in service of His will. Doesn't that sound exactly like what happened to Christ? The very actions of the people who were trying to destroy Him were the actions that brought about His greatest glory and our salvation. When he went to the cross and Satan was rejoicing and the Romans were thinking finally the end of this complication in the East and the religious leaders were thinking at last we can go back to the way things were and we can hold on to our power and our influence while this trouble causer disappears from sight, God works his plan and tears the temple temple, the temple uh, curtain in two, 
and everything goes dark, and a centurion at the last moment looks at Christ dying on the cross and says, surely this was the Son of God. And three days later, he rises. And 2,000 years later, his church is across the earth, spearheaded by 12 uneducated fishermen. And that's where we stand right now. We stand looking back at that great heritage of all of those prophets standing up and calling people to repentance and to surrender to their God once more, culminating in this greatest of prophets, Jesus Christ, who not only called his people to repentance, but in the power of the Spirit reconciled his people to his Father. So we stand here looking back at that great victory on the cross and looking forward to his great return when he will rule, when he will rule all of creation from Zion. A great hope, a great message that should drive our thoughts, our actions, our words. A hope that makes us very earthly good, makes us very productive in the here and now. If there's one thing you should take away from this text, it's this. Even though the future seems bleak, God will always protect his people and will restore them. But more importantly than that, that God restores his kingdom. It's not all about you as individuals, it's about you as a collective, it's about his kingdom. It's about the place where he rules and he reigns. It's the place where nations come to him for wisdom. Our future hope is not that we will be sorted. It's not that we will have a bigger house, that we will have an annual holiday, that we will finally have peace in our homes and our children will respect our every word. I mean, it would be great if that was it. But this is so much more than that. That's, that's not the kind of peace that is, is ultimately what God is after. It's not about when we are sorted. It's when we will be in his presence. And in his presence, we will be resting. We will be resting because we're no longer rebelling. Because we finally come to a place where we are secure where we feel that his rule is right and therefore we don't have to fight against it and try and rule and influence and change and control our lives. Where we are submitted, where we are yielded, where we are safe. If we zoom out and we look at this chapter 4, in the context of chapter three, it changes ever so slightly. But it's important that we see it. God's ultimate aim and our salvation rest in one common thing, his greatest glory. His greatest glory. We want to glorify God, 
but it's important for us to know that God wants to glorify God. God is primarily focused on ensuring that He is most glorified, and, and He will go to great lengths, great lengths to ensure that. And, and that may seem at odds at first with the prevailing message of the gospel, that He loved us. And while we were still sinners, He made the movement towards us to bring about our reconciliation to Him. But it's not. His glory and our salvation are tied together. Some of you may know what the first question of the Westminster Catechism says or asks. What is the chief end of man? What is the reason for man? What is the reason that we exist? And it answers based on the church's study of Scripture that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So when we get to the philosophers and they ask what meaning is, what, what is the meaning of life? The chief end of man is to glorify God. It's not to be happy. And to enjoy Him forever. Oh, hang on, there's a thing, that's joy. So our happiness and our joy is based in our glorifying of God and treasuring Him. And so we come to a place where we think, okay, what does this mean? It means that He is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. The, Israel, the, the error that Israel made and the error that religious people in general make is to imagine that God is content to be remembered in monuments and traditions, to be remembered in nations and all that they mean, to be remembered by people that get circumcised on the eighth day and then don't do anything with that for the rest of their lives that he will jealously protect his honor by perpetuating these traditions and protect, protecting buildings or nations. The leaders of Israel and Judah at this point had become emboldened by this way of thinking to the point where they believed they could do anything they wanted and they wouldn't be harmed. Nothing bad would come to them because God was, God's presence was in the nation. He was neatly tucked away in his temple in Jerusalem. But God is after a glory that is far greater than that. He has no problem. He has no problem allowing an invading nation to completely destroy temples and cities and scatter his chosen people if it will bring about his ultimate purposes of magnifying his glory by restoring to himself a repentant people who acknowledge him who acknowledge Him as their ultimate treasure. Not thinking of what they can gain through knowing Him or the protection that invoking Him brings, but Him as their treasure, Himself. Just being in His presence is enough. He is sufficient. He is everything they need. And that is what He is after. Our salvation comes from contentment in a God that is great. And this is the hope that Micah points towards in these verses, a hope that is reflected in, in Revelation as we see a vision of a, a new heaven 
and a new earth where our Savior rules and reigns over all the peace, over all, and, and peace stands in the place of war. Worship team, do you want to come up as I finish? This is Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. This is John on Patmos, the disciple of Jesus who just would not die. And then he receives a vision of the glory of Christ. And in that vision, he sees this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. Sorry, I need to clarify the sea was no more as a surfer. The sea is symbolic of death. Okay, I I, I certainly hope there will be a sea in the new heavens and the new earth. (laughs) And the sea will be no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be their God, with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. So for us, in the here and now, the big question is, what will we do? What will we do, people, in the power of the Spirit, preaching His Word and caring for those that are less fortunate than ourselves, with repentance hearts? What is it that we do to reflect the hope that is within us? Do we look like people of hope? I know my thinking on Monday morning was that, hmm, I don't feel like going back to work just yet. Will I look like a person of hope? in that context? Will I be the person that reflects what God has done inside of me and the future hope that I have? Will you be those people? Will you be the people that reflect the joy, the anticipation of waiting for His return and what that means for you? Will you be telling stories about all the things that you'll be getting up to when you finally see Him face to face? What is it that's driving your behavior day to day. What are we going to do to let the world know that there is a future dawn that awaits us? A joy that reduces our current challenges to insignificance. And in the West, honestly, it is so insignificant. But a joy that reduces all suffering, all current challenges to insignificance. A hope that is strong enough to carry us through the worst the world can throw at us. What are we going to do, church? Maybe not an application, but a challenge. Let's pray. Let's stand up. Let's pray and let's respond. Let's put our hands out.
Lord, as we stand here having heard your words, Holy Spirit, I pray that you do your work, that you take those words and you drive them deep into our hearts and into our souls. Lord, I pray that we would not be tempted just to analyze the poetry or to think about the historical significance, but Holy Spirit, you would make those words come alive for us, that you would help us to apply them in our lives now. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would ignite flames inside each and every one of us as members of your church, the ones that hold this great message of hope, hope in what you have accomplished in your great victory and hope to come in your return. And Lord, I pray that we would be faithful messengers of that hope, that bring a message to a world that is filled with with love, with care, with compassion, but is also filled with truth that cuts to the bone and challenges thinking and and shifts people if if they feel that that in any way God is is violating their sovereign will. Lord, I pray that you smash through that Holy Spirit, that you give us the boldness of the prophet to stand before kings and to declare the truth of the King of Kings. In Jesus' name, amen.